All right. Hi, you guys, and welcome to Speak the Movement, a podcast where we speak with yoga practitioners, teachers, and business owners for more perspective and insight. Today, we're here with registered yoga and meditation teacher and also soon-to-be acupuncturist, Camilla Matos. So hi, Camilla. Hi. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast today. Thank you for inviting me to share the space. So the first question that I'm going to start you out with is pretty broad, um, but... What is Camila's yoga movement all about? Um, I would say that my yoga movement is about inviting each person to connect more deeply with themselves and our shared human experience. And through that, connecting more deeply to one another. I feel like I can feel that in your yin classes and even when you're teaching online and we're far away from each other. Um, but to start off on the topic of your life, um, so I've always seen you as very like nature vibes. And when I see your Instagram, I get nature vibes, like other nature loves to hike. And I read that you named your dog worm. So what inspired <laughs> you? How, why did you name your dog after a little slimy earth creature? <laughs> yeah, I guess worms are not super cute. Why would you pick that? Um, I do love being outside. I do find nature really therapeutic, but that did not factor into this decision, surprisingly. Um, he is part boxer, um, part mastiff. And I don't know if you've spent a lot of time around boxers, but they're really energetic and really playful and really silly. And when he gets excited, his whole body wiggles. Like it just like kind of reverberates. Um, and he kind of looked like a worm wiggling on the ground. And so that's where it came from. It's just like oh his body gosh. like a worm. <laughs> yeah. So um, on the topic of your life, you spent most of your childhood and like developmental years in England until you eventually decided to go to college in Austin at the University of Texas to study communications. So how does your or how did your international experience during those formative years mold the way that you viewed American life? Ooh, um, well, I was, funnily enough, I was actually born in Houston to immigrant parents who oh. were in Houston. My dad was um, studying at Rice University, um, and my mom was here with him. I think he was doing, like, a one-year, like, MBA-type program, um, and my mom was here with him, so I was born here, and then we moved back to Brazil after about two months, so really the the bulk of my childhood was spent in Brazil and in the UK, as you mentioned. Um, gosh, how did it mold my view of the United States? You know, the image of the United States that's imported, or I should say exported, is really idealistic. So if you think back to what was being exported in the 90s, it was things like Sweet Valley High, <laughs> you know, it was things like Saved by the Bell. So as a child growing up in very dreary gray England, and I say that with love because I love England, um, you know, the image I had of the United States was like, okay, so everyone is super blonde and super hot. Everyone drives a convertible. Apparently everyone lives nearby, near the beach and everyone is like very wealthy. Um, and to be honest with you, I, I didn't know any better. And then we moved to Houston and I was like, there's no beach here. Uh, like, oh, I wish, I, knew. I wish that was what it was like, but then I'm sure the experience of Austin was very different than all of that. So then when you eventually did go to Austin for college, it was University of Texas. Is that 
right? Yeah, I went to UT. I went to, um, I double majored in film and French. Um, I have always been very much an idealist. So my father wanted me to go into business, business administration. And I was like, no, I'm a creative artsy type. I'm going to be a filmmaker. I'm going to study French poetry. Um, and I did. <laughs> and it was wonderful. I mean, I don't, I don't regret that decision as well. I don't know that I walked away with a degree that's entirely useful. <laughs> um, but I really, I loved the type of coursework that I got to take. Yeah, and I can see how like you had such a cultured um, field of study. And so as you're moving into this health and wellness space, like your education in, in terms of that is also very cultured. So what was it that inspired you to kind of step away from the desk and onto your yoga mat? I started experiencing anxiety. And it was, gosh, uh, 2009, so 11 years ago, I want to say, that I had my first panic attack. And I was with my boyfriend at the time. And no joke, I was convinced that I was having a heart attack. I was mm -hmm. like, straight up, you need to drive me to the hospital. I am dying. And he was like, you're 26 years old. <laughs> like, you're, this is not a heart attack. It's something else. Um, and so that was that was the beginning of my experience with an anxiety disorder that was eventually diagnosed as GAD, generalized anxiety disorder and panic mm -hmm. disorder. Um, and I started, you know, I went to doctors, I went to um, therapists, and I went to one psychologist who wanted to put me on a medication. And being the kind of type A person that I am, I went home immediately, Googled that medication, and Googled its side effects, which, you know, they tell you not to do. They're like, don't try to diagnose yourself. Don't WebMD your life. Um, but I did. And I remember reading side effects included uh, like increased suicidal ideation. And I was like, well, that doesn't seem like a great trade-off. And I want to be clear that like, I don't disparage medication at all. I'm so grateful that it exists and I have used it for periods of time mm -hmm. um, when things like were particularly bad with my anxiety. And I know that it is incredibly helpful and I'm, I'm grateful that it exists. I just thought that maybe there was something else. Like maybe before I go to this super hardcore pharmaceutical option, I could find something different. Mm -hmm. And so I was Googling, thanks Google. Um, and all these articles started popping up about how like yoga can help with stress and anxiety. And I was like, okay, I had done yoga a few times in high school at my neighborhood gym with my friend Megan. And then in college, I was part of the university yoga club and we met in the student uh, union on Tuesday nights at six and we would do yoga. And I was like, okay, well, I, I've done that before. It's, it's interesting to me. So let's see what this is all about. That's why I eventually went to yoga. I wish that in my, I have a similar experience. Anyone who's listened to the podcast also knows I also struggled with anxiety and panic disorder my whole life, um, actually. And I experienced it a lot in childhood, but uh, I kind of had a break in my teen years. And then all of a sudden in college, I started having panic attacks again, and same experience of thinking I was dying, and then also realizing in my childhood, like, oh, like, this is what was happening to you when I was seven, um, but at the time, I didn't know 
anything about yoga really. And my solution was like getting a dog. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I leaned on meds for a long time and I leaned on spending a lot of time with my dog and then eventually found yoga and was able to wean away from medicine mm-hmm. um, that or from, you know, SSRI type of medicine in that way. And it works for some people. For me, I did not love the side effects and I love um, the balance that I found now. Um, so did you start out with just asana and then kind of get into the more introspective topics and then eventually from asana how did your vision shift to more body anatomy and um restorative practices yeah um first of all i'm i appreciate you sharing your experience with anxiety i think it's really important for people to talk about this because i remember how isolating it felt for me when i started experiencing panic attacks no one in my friend group had it and i thought i was insane i was like i am losing because you know every part of your body in that moment is telling you that something is wrong and you're on the cusp of death Mm -hmm. and unless you've experienced it it really does sound kind of bananas Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I appreciate that you're sharing this and, and talking about your experience, because I think the more we normalize it and share it, the better it is for, for those of us experiencing it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I came to yoga through asana because I didn't, I didn't know any better. You know, mm-hmm. I had heard of meditation. I probably read it in like a, an issue of Cosmo <laughs> or like <laughs> self or something, you know, um, but I didn't know about the inner workings of this practice or the, how broad and deep the practice was. Um, So I was a member of 24-Hour Fitness. They had a yoga class on the schedule. I was like, Google said this would help. I'm going to go to this yoga class at the gym. (laughs) Um, And I remember, and you'll probably relate to this as someone who has experienced panic, like there's there's such a deep awareness of breath. It's it's like your worldview shrinks down to just your breath and your heartbeat. Yeah. And so I'm in this yoga class and I feel my heartbeat start to change and I feel my breath start to change because I'm exerting effort and at that point in my life my only I was I was not a a, I'm not I don't come from like a fitness background you know I'm not one of those yogis who has a background in dance or gymnastics or whatever um very much a like high school nerd so (laughs) I found myself moving my body and exerting effort and so my heart rate went up my breathing got a little shallower. And at that point, my only references for increased heart rate and choppy breath was a panic attack. So I'm in this yoga class and I start to feel panicky. because I'm like, my heart rate is going up. My, my breath is changing. And I remember just thinking, like, I just like, I got to get through this, not as any test of my resilience or ability, but honestly, because I was embarrassed to leave. I, I didn't have the, I guess, like, sense of self-worth or, or whatever it is um, to just like get up and leave in the middle of a class. I thought it would be terribly rude. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, I just got to get through this. Mm-hmm. And then I remember lying down at the end and like wanting to cry because I was like, I can't believe I just did that. I can't believe I just survived 60 minutes of whatever the hell down dogs and chaturangas mm-hmm. are, you know, <laughs> like whatever the <laughs> hell just happened. I survived. I'm still breathing. I'm not dead and that might sound melodramatic but for those listening who have experienced panic that's that's how real it feels for you in that moment if I could jump in here I it's very incredible for me to hear you like divulge that experience um because even with friends that I've had with anxiety and panic I've 
never found somebody who has had a similar experience that fitness and elevated heart rate was triggering to panic attacks. Um, for me, before I started having panic attacks, I would cycle um, and I would do like really heavy cardio, like bike cycling in a cycle class. Mm -hmm. And I, once I started having panic attacks, I completely stopped with fitness because when I went to my cycle class, I would have, I didn't know if it was an asthma attack or a panic attack, but I would be out in the lobby going like this until I could calm down. And eventually I was just too uncomfortable to even go. Um, and so for me, when I went into yoga, it was this similar concept of like meeting my edge, but you're so carried through it. And um, the breath doesn't become as labored and crazy as cycling. And it was that middle ground for me to be able to meet my edge. And like you said, in Shavasana, be able to retrospect on that whole experience. So yeah. it's so cool to be able to relate um, with you on, on that topic, because that's the first time I've ever heard anyone have the same experience with fitness and heart rate and breath and mm -hmm. panic. And, and to your point about like how you kind of um move into that place of like peak effort in yoga and then you come down like that that's how in my opinion and and the way i've studied and understood asana and breath and the nervous system the way i understand is that that's how an intelligent yoga class ought to be sequenced right mm -hmm. we don't want to just like get people in there and give them 60 minutes of like intense <laughs> sympathetic nervous system triggering like movement just go 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 pound it out you know like we're gonna start slow we're gonna build and during that time I'm gonna be able to check in reflect how am I doing am I still feeling okay am I still feeling safe can I can I go a little further like the teacher is cueing and then okay now we're coming down I'm feeling my breath slow down I'm feeling my heart rate slow down um, and I think that's what kind of allowed me to continue to develop a relationship with this yeah but to your question about like the more soothing side of things so um shortly after i started practicing yoga at 24-hour fitness a studio opened up in my neighborhood called east side yoga um it was right across from blue dahlia bistro on 11th street and i could i could bike there from my apartment so i started going there and i still at this time i didn't really know anything about yoga i I didn't know hatha vinyasa. I just was like, roll out a mat and tell me to do stuff. Mm. Um, and there was a teacher there. And there were a lot of teachers at Eastside who have a very special place in my heart. Um, Melissa Spammer being one of them. But Eva Dirtina Hall um, had a hatha flow class. And I loved her sequencing. I loved her voice. I just loved taking class from her. And I saw that she was teaching something called yin on Thursday nights. And I didn't know what yin was, but I was like, I know I love her Hatha flow classes. I love her. So I'm gonna go to this yin thing and just see what it's all about. Um, and in total transparency, I hated my first yin class. Mm. I despised it. I was not in a place in my life where being still and silent was okay. Those felt like very foreign, um, uncomfortable experiences for me because I, I think like most Americans, um, lived a very distracted and overstimulated life. And once those things were taken out of the equation and I was just left with myself on a mat with my breath, um, it was very disarming. And so I really, you know, if you had told me eight, nine years ago that I would be predominantly a yin teacher and meditation teacher, I would have laughed in your face. I would have been like, no, nah, I'm not into that stuff. <laughs> um, 
but I kept going back and I can't really tell you why I kept going back except for to say that there's been a trend in my life where anytime something pokes me, like anytime I have an experience that flares up a lot of resistance, I get curious about why. Mm -hmm. You know, so anytime yeah. I have something and my initial response is just like, boom, I'm resisting, I'm pushing back. Um, something about me wants to return to that. <laughs> so I, I went back and over time I fell in love with it. That's awesome. I, I also, when I, when I started Yen and I still struggle with sitting still um, and especially with anxiety and panic for me, being alone with my thoughts was um, very difficult. And while you're kind of shedding layers in the physical aspect, like I feel like in, in yin, you have very long periods of time where you hold poses that slightly challenge you, but the longer that you stay um, in the resting posture, the more that you begin to open um, and you're peeling layers away in, in, in that sense, but also peeling away these layers of seeing what was going on in my head. I, I totally agree with you about like the difficulty in getting still and silent because even nowadays, a regular yoga class is full of stimulation, right? I mean, right now we're not practicing in studios, but when we were, you might be in a room with 30 other humans. There might be really loud music going or there's loud music in the studio next door. Mm -hmm. um, so even in the contemporary yoga practice, we are super stimulated and you know tempted with a lot of distractions and things to pull us away um so even in in the yoga asana practice as it is today it's hard to find that and it's really only practices like yin restorative meditation nidra that we have the opportunity to go there being alone with my thoughts was a new challenge um yeah. but can you tell me a little bit about something i wanted to touch on was the basic premises of meridian theory and then how meridians guide how you sequence your yin classes. Uh, so the idea of meridians uh, comes from Chinese medicine. And I guess the simplest way to try to understand it is that these are like rivers or currents of energy moving through the body. And there's been a lot of research to try to overlap the channel uh, theory with like biomedicine. So there are questions about do the meridians line up with blood vessels? Do the meridians line up with fascia? Do, do they line up with this, that, or the other? Um, and there hasn't been a direct correlation made or, or a direct overlap made. Um, but we do find that a lot of acupuncture points fall at these kind of connection places in the body where things come together. Um, so yeah, so the channels are kind of like these energy rivers moving through the body. Um, and there's many of them. There are 12 that are considered sort of the regular channels or the main channels. And each of those correlates to an organ system in the body. So you've got like the lung channel that originates in the chest and moves down the interior, like medial aspect of the arm to end in the thumb. You've got the large intestine, which starts in the forefinger and runs up the back side of the arm and ends in your face. Um, so all of these channels correspond with an organ system. And then we have additional channels that do some other things. So we've got the governing channel, which runs up the back of the body. We've got the conception channel running down the center of the body. Um, and then we've got channels like the yin chow, yang chow, which oversee our circadian rhythms and sleep cycles. Um, so 
in Chinese medicine, there's kind of this like offshoot or individual philosophy called five element theory, which organizes everything into principles of elements, right? So we've got um, earth, wood, fire, water, and metal. And each of the organs fall into one of these elemental buckets. So when we're talking about summer, we're talking about the season of fire, which is overseen by heart and small intestine. And as we now feel ourselves begin to shift into fall, that's the season of metal, which is lung and large intestine. Um, so when I sequence my yin practices, and even vinyasa is influenced by this as well, I try to sequence through the lens of five element theory um, and through what we know about the seasons right now, the organs impacted, the kind of psycho-emotional elements of, of what's happening, um, the energetics, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, could you also tell me how the concept of qi relates to five element theory and channel theory as you're speaking on? Ooh, so um, yeah, qi is such a, it's such a big concept and it's been translated myriad different ways and some of the translations are words like energy or life force. It's most often compared to the idea of prana in the yogic tradition. Um, so we, we kind of use the word energy as a catch-all for chi, uh, but chi is much broader and wider than that. Uh, chi is everything both made manifest and unmanifested. Um, so, you know, the tree, is a physical manifestation of chi. The wind blowing the leaves of the tree is also chi. You know, the body, the breath, the movement of blood through the blood vessels, it's all chi. Because chi moves through us and because we are manifestations of chi, uh, these energy channels are how this entity of chi or this idea of chi travels through the body. So you've got the chi of the breath. You've got the chi of the food, which is gu chi. Um, you've got the chi of the heart and lung and the chest, which is your zong chi. And so each of these individual kind of manifestations of chi has a name and a role and a purpose, but they are all part of this big umbrella of just general life force or chi. You know, what we're doing in, in yin, and really not just in yin, but any type of movement, even if you don't apply the idea of chi or five element theory to cycling or running, it's still there. Any form of movement gets your blood flowing, it gets fluids in the body moving, and it gets chi flowing in your body. Um, I think the key difference with something like uh, yin yoga or qigong is that you are intentionally moving in a way to guide chi or to encourage chi to move through specific channels or to move through specific parts of the body or to encourage the chi of a specific organ system. So if we're practicing in the fall, I'm going to be sequencing to bolster the chi of your lung and large intestine, um, because that's the time of year during which chi is moving predominantly through those organs, moving through the energies of those systems. And we want to encourage and, and uplift and support those parts of the body. The idea of Chinese medicine really is one of prevention, right? We want to 
aid the body in doing what it's naturally designed to do, which is heal itself and be, be healthy and whole. The body seeks health. The body wants to be optimally functioning. Um, and so Chinese medicine is just here to, to help it do what it's designed to do beautifully already. Yeah. And I also love that, I mean, a lot of us don't uh, know a ton about these larger concepts of Chinese medicine that goes into the practice of yin. But the great thing about yin is that you don't need to think about any of that when you show up to class because she's going to do it for you. I think that that's true of any yoga class, right? Like you could go into a class and the teacher's like, all right, we're working on back bends today, heart opening. And so the uh, philosophy we're going to go with is Ishvara Pranidhana. And like, you don't actually need to think about that obsessively because the teacher's kind of holding that space and guiding you through it. Right. So what can a student expect an outcome to be after they come out of your yin class? How do they leave feeling? You know, my hope is that people leave feeling rested um, and a little bit relaxed because like we were talking about earlier, we are so overstimulated. We live in a culture of hyperstimulation, 24-hour information cycle. It's a very young culture, right? It's very, um, it's very young in nature. And so if people come to my class and just for 60 minutes or 75 minutes, however long, they can feel a little bit of rest, they can find a little bit of relaxation, and their nervous system can start to move from this kind of chronic state of stimulation and, and sympathetic nervous system activation just down into a slightly more calm quiescent parasympathetic state um, I feel like I've done my job totally um, and then in a similar vein also I know you're still studying acupuncture but what do you hope to deliver to clients that you practice acupuncture with or I guess it's very personalized but what does that connection look like between you and a client? Yeah, I, I think one of the cool things about Chinese medicine is that it can um, serve a really wide population. So there are Chinese medicine practitioners who focus on like fertility and women's health. And there are those who focus on like um, neurological disorders. And there are those who focus on, you know, pain and sports medicine and pain management. Um, I am really interested in working with stress, anxiety, and autoimmune disorders. Um, there's a lot of overlap there. And we know from research that over 80% of people who suffer from autoimmune disorders are women, and that women report higher rates of stress and are the bulk of anxiety sufferers, at least in the United States. The frequency of anxiety amongst women is far higher than amongst men. Um, and so for me, you know, my, my vision, my hope, my goal is that I'm supporting and working alongside women as they navigate their own health and wellness. Um, and I, I hope to use all these tools that I've acquired. So a patient comes in and we can decide what's best for them, you know, be it 30 minutes of yin yoga and 30 minutes of acupuncture or like a little bit of cupping and some meditation and some acupuncture um, because everyone's different. Everyone's going to respond to modalities different. Like you said, like 
pharmaceuticals weren't great for you, but you acknowledge that they are great for other people. Mm-hmm. Some people are going to respond really well to movement and to mm-hmm. yoga. And some people are going to respond better to, you know, um, gua sha or acupuncture or something mm-hmm. like that. So having like a little toolkit um, that you can sort of dig into and find what works best for your patient. That's, that's sort of the goal. Yeah, totally. And I, I, for me, it's largely centered around lifestyle. Um, like I like to take the time out of my day to practice asana for an hour every day. Like that's really important to me. Um, but for some other people and other life circumstances, like that's not possible, you know what I mean? And so I think that, um, being able to like see a person for what's happening in their lives and what's happening surrounding them and then catering your treatment like to that mix of things and not adding stress to the per- person's life, but just amplifying what's there and finding out what fits is really important in that process. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, to your point about like you choose to prioritize an hour of asana every day, um, you found that that's what works for you. And I think one of the things that the current studio iteration, the, you know, the current yoga studio iteration doesn't do is it doesn't allow for um, different bodies practicing yoga and Mm -hmm. different approaches to yoga. You know, like when you look at um, a yoga studio schedule, it's 60 minute classes. Maybe there's an occasional 45 or 75, but by and large, it's 60 minute classes. Um, and it's a lot of vinyasa or ashtanga or power. Um, so who is able to take 60 minute classes in the morning or at lunch or after, after quote unquote work, right? At that 6 p.m. slot. And who is able to do vinyasa? It's a very specific type of able-bodied person, probably a nine to five job. Um, so the current studio system, and this isn't to bash on the current studio system, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's doing what it can. Um, but there's a lot of there's a lot of people who aren't served by that. And I think that working one-on-one with students in a yoga capacity and then patients slash students as a yoga practitioner, who's also a yoga teacher will help me fill in some of that, some of that gap, you know, cause it's, it's heartbreaking as a teacher when someone comes to your class um, and can't do what is required of them in that particular setting. Mm-hmm. When you know that there's something that is good for them, but that's not what's being offered right now, right here. And unfortunately, in a public space, I don't have the, the time or ability to give you that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's also part of the vision is like, who, who is falling through the cracks that we might be able to serve one-on-one? Yeah, you know? definitely. It's, it's interesting pointing out kind of those weaknesses in the system. I, especially because my background is in power training and like when I step into a class as teacher like I have all these goals that I'm trying to hit of like this is the sequence I'm trying to get this sequence in 60 minutes like I'm trying to be able to speak to you about my dharma I'm trying to be able to give you alignment cues so that you can understand the integrity of the posture and I think that the responsibility of like managing all of that plus lights and sound and music and like holding space for all the students in the room it's hard to do all of that and have the responsibility of personalizing the yoga for every person in the room because you can't and that's another thing i learned in teacher training too is like there's always going to be someone who leaves the room a little bit incomplete, which is really sad and, and hard to accept but at the same time like there's a big difference between 
teaching a class and then working with people one-on-one, -on -one, um, which I think also touches on a question that I had for you was the difference between taking a fitness class and practicing yoga or practicing wellness. Coming in for an asana class or just coming in for fitness, like you're coming in for a workout for 60 minutes that's not necessarily specialized to your needs, right? And I think when yeah. it comes down to really practicing yoga, study yoga and figure out what it means in your life and how it fits to you. I don't think that there's anything wrong with accessing yoga as fitness. Um, I think that for a lot of us, myself included, I came to yoga through asana, you know, and when I stepped on my mat the first time, did not think I was going to be meditating did not think I would, you know, none of these other things that have happened were on the table for me at the time, especially because in this day and age where we live such sedentary lives, and most of us are so disconnected from our physical selves, any movement you can do, I'm just like, yes, get it. Um, so if a person is just like, I'm not interested in this other stuff, I just want to move my body from time to time and I want to feel my body and I want to breathe and then I like want to go home and do whatever. Um, I think that's fine. You know, I think it's okay that asana can live in the same space as indoor cycling or a kickboxing class or whatever. I think it's great that it can occupy that space, but mm -hmm. it then also occupies this other space. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and I think, I think the problem that I see is that we've, we meaning those of us in the yoga industry, those of us who are kind of the gatekeepers, right? Studio owners, teachers, whatever. Um, we've shifted our focus so much towards asana as fitness that we've forgotten this other beautiful, very valid, important, you know, context that yoga occupies. Um, and I think we've done that because of consumer needs or because of the way like the economy and the market works that we need to make it digestible and palatable. And if you have like a 90 minute cl Dharma class where the teacher's speaking Sanskrit, it might be alienating, um, which is unfortunate because again, asana is fitness. Great. Go for it. But all of this other stuff, all of the cultural and historical context of yoga um, it adds layers to your practice. It adds layers to your experience of yourself in this practice. And it also is what distinguishes a practice of cultural appropriation versus appreciation, right? Um, yeah. if, you, if you are taking the time, you know, I've, I've heard from teachers who are like, I don't use Sanskrit because it's a foreign language. It's alienating. People might think it's weird or woo-woo. And I'm like, we're stripping away so much of the historical and cultural context which is, I think, a disservice to the practice of yoga. I think it's also a disservice to students. We're assuming that students are like, I don't know, too lazy, too stupid, too disinterested to want to broaden their minds in this way. Um, so I don't know if that answered your question, but that's- No, it does. I mean, and it's also just like, a, I don't feel like there is a concrete answer, like, um, especially in terms of like, it's always this juggle of where do we meet in the middle on this, I feel. Um, I practiced a lot at a studio that was power vinyasa, loud music, low lights, um, all kind of the flashy tricks that a lot of, you know, Western yoga practitioners enjoy. And I can't lie and say that 
you know, I don't enjoy that because I do. Mm -hmm. I also grew up in a Western world where like that drew me in and allowed me to go deeper. And then I also practiced in a, in Ashtanga Shala where we would come in and practice Mysore Monday through Friday, like completely different experience. Right. But there was Um, no loud music in the Ashtanga community no it's you come in it's quiet you know the teacher only comes up to you to whisper to you about your alignment or to teach you the next posture that you don't know yet so and it's very much like go in have your independent meditative experience and then you know move on to the next part of your day um and those were two just vastly different practices and i'm so glad that i got to experience both Um, and I hate to invalidate either one and still at the same time, I agree and hope that the Western version of that and the flashy version of that still always gives you the avenue to explore the depth of the history of where that came from and the appreciation of where it was built. I feel that I got that, especially going through teacher training and going everywhere else but I can definitely see that in America, we lose sight of that at times. Right, and I think the the other kind of layer, because this, this is a multi-layered question, you know, I think the, the additional layer to that is that yoga has been touted as a healing modality, right? It's like, go to yoga, you have a back pain, go to yoga, you are depressed, whatever. Um, and I'm not saying that yoga can't be a tool for health and a tool for healing, Um, But I think, again, when it's only presented in one way, when all we're seeing, which, you know, largely the case now is that the majority of studios focus their resources on classes like power yoga um, and heated yoga and yoga without music, I don't know that I would agree that those are healing, helpful environments. Mm-hmm. Um, partially because like if we if we think about the heat component just for a moment uh, hot yoga has only been around for like 40-ish years we don't have research and we don't have data on the long-term effects of a consistent hot yoga practice mm-hmm. now if you're doing hot yoga once a week or whatever like that's probably fine mm-hmm. um, but I can't tell you the number of times Libby and I'm sure you've seen this too as a power yoga teacher where people roll in and they are like hungover, so already dehydrated, and rolling into a power yoga class on a stomach that's empty except for coffee. Um, and again, that was me. That-, that was me. <laughs> I'm serious as an early practitioner before I really got into my balanced life. Like that was me, 100. percent Oh my god, that's so funny. And I'm I'm not saying this with judgment. I'm saying it with concern. Like, yeah, I know, yeah, concern. You know, like um, because I think people have been told like yoga heals and yoga will fix all your problems and yoga is magical and it's like well it's not magical if you're like dehydrated and then going into a hot studio and further dehydrating yourself like that's the antithesis of magical so I think it's like these these levels of just again like any if you're moving your body and if yoga makes you feel good and it's connecting connecting you to yourself in a way that you haven't had before that's phenomenal Um, I just want to make sure that we're not overlooking like medical context, historical context, cultural context, which complicates things in a world that likes things very quick, easy, digestible, get in, get my workout workout on and then go home. Yeah. You know, 
Yeah, definitely. And also in, in the vein of uh, yoga knowledge and practicing your yoga beyond just being on the mat for a 60 minute power class, um, something that I found on your website that I got so excited about was something that you called the share your voice challenge where you would have yeah. a client who goes and votes and they take a picture of their sticker that says, I voted, they send it to you and you give them a personalized meditation. So can you tell me about using your voice and why, why that political activism is important to you? Yeah, um, so share your voice was something that I thought about around the time of the primary elections um, and just, had other things on my plate that I couldn't put together. So I'm putting together Share Your Voice for the November election. Um, and basically what it is is like, you vote, you get your sticker, you take a photo, you tag me in it, um, and then I'm, I'm gonna pick a winner and that person is gonna get a personalized meditation course. Um, I just wanted to find a way to get involved in whatever way I can. Like, I'm a yoga teacher, I'm not a lobbyist, I'm not involved actively in politics. Um, but I wanted to do something to inspire or motivate people to be more politically active because I, I believe that yoga is a tool. It's not a passive practice, um, or at least I don't think it should be. That, that's one woman's opinion. Um, I, for me, yoga, when we engage with the practice, becomes this lifelong exploration. And it should, again, in my opinion, deepen our relationship to ourselves, deepen our relationship to other people and to the surrounding world. Um, and you, you kind of can't separate that from politics, right? And I do think that the practice has to be active. It can't just be what happens for 60 minutes on your mat. It has to be a continual process of self-reflection and self-assessment and, and questioning and challenging. Um, and, I, you know, my hope is that yoga invites us and challenges us to evolve in ways that make us better and then we take that out into the world and we take better care of each other we make the world a better place not to sound cheesy but that's that's my that's my vision um and i think this is one part of it yeah and to go even deeper um on that something that i saw you speak on uh, on your social media recently is like the concept of spiritual bypassing and kind of just like you know, making your yoga, like you said, digestible, like packaging it up and not, you know, saying anything that makes people think too hard in any one way or another. Um, and just kind of like pushing away conflict uh, in favor of just simply saying good vibes. Uh, and we just don't deal with anything that's not good vibes. Um, and so can you tell me what you think that it means for a yogi to do the inner work to really think about how they're the piece of the whole and then to include their practice in a way that is not simply just okay just good energy yeah even if we share the practice together um through asana classes or through meditation classes i think that the path has to ultimately be walked alone and so the way it it comes to life for people is going to look very different you know for example my my friend and teacher hilly um and her partner ben they're both vegans. And for them, that is one way of embodying their values and living with integrity. Um, and I have like so much respect for the two of them because in my experience and my relationship with them, they are people who like truly live their values. They are people of high integrity. 
Um, but that might not be the case for someone else. You know, another beloved teacher of mine who I hold in high regard, Giaconda, is not a vegan. So, mm -hmm. you know, they're both, they're all walking the path of yoga. I'm walking the path of yoga. It's coming to life as something different for each of us. Um, but I think that in order to engage with yoga really actively, uh, we have to be willing to slow down. We have to be willing to find pockets of presence in our day-to-day -day life. Everything we do is so fast nowadays. Um, we're moving at the speed of light in our, in our technology and in our social media and our information com consumption. Um, there is a never-ending deluge of things for us to consume. And our practice has begun, begun to mirror that, like what we've talked about, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's begun to, the yoga practice in its, its current inception mirrors a lot of that. Uh, and I think that if we want to engage the practice, we need to be willing to slow down long enough to begin to notice what we feel at the level of the body, at the level just below the skin, at the level of our emotions, right? We start to move through the koshas. Um, and I think that we have to be willing to explore the non-asana side of things. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that there's a right way to do that. You know, maybe meditation for you is 20 minutes in the morning out on your deck. Maybe for someone else, it's mantra or pranayama. It's, you know, I practice, I rest. Um, but I think that if you are willing to self-reflect, if you're willing to develop self-awareness and that that shit is going to get real uncomfortable real quick mm -hmm. you know like it's yeah. it just is um but if you're willing to do it and you're you're willing to explore every deep dark crevice within um I think that's what it looks like to be on this path and the beauty of yoga is that it has so many things to offer right you can turn to the eight limbs and you can dive into uh, the yamas and niyamas and start to use those as codes of ethic for or codes of ethics for how you live your life you can um you know kind of refer to the bhagavad gita and search for meaning there and take lessons from that tome that you apply to life you can use the yoga sutras you can like i said you can chant you can do breath work um, so there's a lot of resources. There's a world of, of opportunity just within the yoga practice. Um, but I have to say that I would also advocate for a really good therapist mm -hmm. and some journaling mm -hmm. and friends who uh, won't bullshit you. <laughs> yes, totally. And just out of curiosity, what are you doing in your personal life currently to continue to do that self-inquiry work? Do you have daily practices or do you feel like you're digging into that through your education? What does that mean to you? So I have a therapist who I see once a week. Shout out to Margaret. Woo -woo. Um, and she, <laughs> she's phenomenal. You know, I was talking to my partner, Trevor, the other day and I was like, I don't know. She just has this way of like, I'll be talking, 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 and she'll pick out one phrase and all of this junk that I said and be like, and what, and what does that make you feel? And what, did, what, is, what are you saying? What, what's happening there? I'm like, what? how did you find the one thing that I didn't want to dig into? <laughs> um, so 
I cannot advocate for therapy enough. I think it is phenomenal. I think everyone should be in therapy and the people who don't think they should be in therapy should be in therapy twice a week. That's yeah. my, <laughs> my philosophy. AKA um, me. It's fine. AKA <laughs> most people. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I think um, I, I love reading. So right now I'm working through a book called Skill in Action, which was recommended by my teacher, Giaconda. And that book has um, like guided journal prompts and meditation activities for you to do. So I'll do those like it's at the end of every chapter. So when I reach the end of a chapter, I'll do that. Um, I love, I love working with books in that way. So books on philosophy and thought. So working through philosophy and self-reflection through journal prompts, through reading. I don't know what it's going to look like from here on out. I just recently started practicing Qigong. And that has been a, a beautiful addition to my kind of like mindfulness practices. Uh, it's very different than yoga asana. And so it gets me out of my comfort zone and my relationship to my body. It kind of um, occupies this like sweet space where like vinyasa is very fluid and yin is very um, still and qigong is in the middle. So I'm mm -hmm. moving, but I'm moving slower than I would in vinyasa. And sometimes right. I find myself getting irritated at my, mm -hmm. uh, my teacher, Dr. Wu. I'm like, oh, God, I'm already done with this breath. Let's move on to the next move. <laughs> that, that process of continually coming back to yourself, continually checking in and being like, Ooh, why am I, why am I so pissed off right now? Why am I so impatient right now? It's no longer, Oh, there's a, there's a sensation of anger arising. Um, I'm, I'm feeling triggered and the response that's coming up is anger. It's no longer that now it's, I am angry. Right. Taking ownership, right. You're identifying with it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Now the, the self has fused with this temporary ephemeral thing that isn't actually real. Um, so I think any practice that encourages you into that place or guides you into that place is well worth exploring. Yeah, I, that was when I very first learned about mindfulness practices in therapy. I learned, you know, it's like you're sitting and you're watching a road and the cars that are going by are your emotions and you watch them and you watch them come and you watch them go. And instead of getting in the car, you take the seat of the observer on the side. There's that level of mindfulness where we start to create a little bit of space between ourselves and our emotions. And then, um, Practices of non-dualism, like Taoism, which is a foundational philosophy of Chinese medicine, these practices invite us to go further. So now we are not just creating space between like self and emotion, like there's, there's the I and then there is the angry and there's space there. But these practices invite us to even investigate the I, right? What is this I? Who is this I? What are the boundaries and parameters of this thing identified as I that is experiencing anger. That's kind of where I'm at right now in my journey is exploring this concept of a self-contained I while understanding that I, quote unquote, I, mm. this I that I identify as, is an inherent part of an unbroken whole. And how do I navigate my life with healthy boundaries and a stable ego that perpetuates self-respect and self-worth while also navigating my life with an understanding that I am part of a whole and that this I is temporary and ephemeral, um, that what makes up this Camilla entity that sits across from you is 
not temporary and ephemeral. It is eternal and everlasting and will linger once the body self is gone. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. How do you plan on taking your education with this, your education with mindfulness, and then taking the next step in your career? What do you think is next for you? Or what do you hope is next for you? School, more school. Potentially more school after that if I want to get my doctorate, which I'm, I'm, I'm weighing whether or not I want to go for the doctoral program. I don't know um, how you do it, Camilla. I don't think I could take another test to save my life. I do not know oh, how you do it. <laughs> there are so many tests in grad school. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm like, what have I done to myself? No, like, are you? Um, okay? And then I'm, I'm like, oh my gosh, my poor spleen chi. Um, my after school is done because acupuncture is a medical profession and it is overseen by the AMA, just like any other medical profession, we have medical boards that we have to take. Just like you would to be like a GP or an oncologist, we have medical boards. So once school is done, there's about a six month window of time during which all acupuncture students lose their shit, study, don't see anyone they love, and then they take their medical boards. Um, After which you are licensed to be a practicing acupuncturist. Um, so the long-term vision, and I've talked to my friend Kerrigan about this, who you, I think mm-hmm. you, you had Kerrigan on, yeah. Her I husband. did, yeah. Um, Kerrigan and I kind of talked about this last year. I haven't touched base with her about it since, but, um, we both sort of had a similar vision for this holistic wellness enterprise, um, because there's such a gap right now in wellness. Like if you have a GP and a cardiologist and maybe an acupuncturist and a massage therapist, all of these people are working independently of one another and no one knows what the other is doing. And we will see um, patients come into the clinic who are on like nine different medications Mm -hmm. that, you know, one doctor prescribed this, another doctor prescribed that. They potentially have um, negative impacts on one another, negating Mm -hmm. the impacts or this, that, or the other. And so the, the vision I would like to see is this holistic wellness center where we have like a, a physician's assistant or an RN registered nurse. Um, we have a, a chiropractor, we have massage therapists, we have acupuncturists, um, we have nutritionists, we have a functional medicine doctor, maybe a naturopath, and all of these people work in the same building. And so it's kind of like a one-stop shop. So if you're dealing with stress and anxiety, you have a therapist on site who knows and collaborates with your acupuncturist, who knows and collaborates with your massage therapist. And all of these people are working together on a plan of like healing for you. Um, because I, I don't know about you, but my experience with anxiety was like, now I'm over here at this doctor talking about this medication. Now I'm over here talking to this person about this. Now I'm going over here. And it felt very much like I was adrift in an ocean seeking help, seeking some kind of raft or lifeline and no one could guide me. You know, that is an experience I would die to have. I mean, like, I can't even tell you, I can't even imagine, like I have a million different specialists for a million things and all the time it's getting on, on the phone with the new doctor's office, trying to make an appointment. And then you go and like, they're asking you all your history because they don't know anything about you. Like, I can't imagine just being able, having one home base spot that you know and love and they know mm-hmm. everything about you and just being able to go there and know that your needs are met. That is incredible. That's my, like, that's my long-term vision. And, and on the ground wow. floor, we would have like a studio space 
that would hold yoga or qigong or whatever you know if i could create a little pocket in this mess where people could come and be like all right my my doctor says i'm pre-hypertensive and she did all the blood work and she's going to talk about the blood work to my acupuncturist and my nutritionist so when i go in to see them next next week they already know what's up and they'll like take care of me in that regard and my nutritionist will set me up with some like dietary advice that will help me no longer be pre-hypertensive you know um that's that's the dream Libby I just need an investor and I need to pass my boards <laughs> y'all this is gonna be I I'm like here for it I believe in this vision I believe it's gonna happen I can't wait to stop going to a million different specialists and going to your right. place that'll be so awesome um but in the meantime what are you offering and where can people find you I have an Instagram as as I guess do we all nowadays. Um, yeah. It's at I am Camilla Matos. Um, so I A M C A M I L A M A T O S. Um, my website is just my name, CamillaMatos.com. Uh, I also teach a few times a week at Wonderlust. I have two vinyasa classes, two yin classes, um, and I'm going to be doing a lot more online stuff. So check out the website and the Instagram if you're interested and all the info will be there. Awesome. Well, I'm so grateful for this hour and the time that you spent with me. And thank you so, so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. And we covered a lot of, a lot of ground, I feel like. Yeah, we definitely did. <laughs> so thank you to everybody that tuned in. Thank you to Camilla and Om Shanti. Peace. Namaste.